is Our American Stories, and we always enjoy a good-hearted and old-fashioned prank once in a while. And we call these our Americana segments because Americans, well, in their spare time, in our spare time, we do all kinds of crazy stuff. We love visiting, for instance, the Mascot Hall of Fame. I mean, there's a guy who actually became the Philly fanatic, and then when he retires, he's thinking, well, we need a Mascot Hall of Fame. And that's what he does with the rest of his life. And God bless him for doing it because it's fun. And Americans love to have fun. And I think no other country likes to have fun like we do. Most of us on our team love the show Impractical Jokers. And by the way, we love to just crack jokes on each other. This is not a place to come in if you don't have a, a, a good, healthy ego. This is not a place to come to work. But not all pranks are created equal. In our ever-increasing litigious society and our hypersensitive society, some pranks can get you in a lot of trouble. Every year around graduation time, we hear news stories about senior pranks gone wrong. 18-year-old Nick Falk pleaded not guilty in Delaware County Municipal Court this morning to two charges, inducing panic and disorderly conduct. The misdemeanor charges come after Falk, who police say dressed from head to toe in black spandex, entered Westerville Central High School Friday and released seven chickens into the commons area. A senior prank say district officials that involved another student and 12 chickens in all. Five boys say they were at first told they could no longer participate in graduation activities. They thought it would just be funny, but the three boys brought, five boys brought three chickens here to school this morning, and one student captured some video of the incident on a cell phone. New at six, seniors at Slinger High School did a good one today, pulling off an unusual prank. They hired a mariachi band to follow their principal around for two hours. Thursday evening, Justin and 19 other seniors got into the school with a key, his father says, came from another parent. They decked the halls in toilet paper, wrote class of 2013 on windows with shoe polish, and left furniture in odd, unexpected places. And so on and so forth. And if you've been in high school or you just had some time to kill, well, that's when the pranks can start. And while we can't condone this kind of behavior, you've got to admit it's kind of funny. But letting chickens go inside of a school is peanuts compared to this next one. This is a prank of such epic proportion that it made world news overnight back in the 1970s. Our grand producer extraordinaire, most high in charge of the universe, brings us the story of a prank so devious, the tale will warm the hearts of men and women for generations to come. Here's Jesse. This is the story of one of the greatest pranks of all time. Oliver Porky Bicker was born November 1st, 1923 in Cialis, Washington, as a young man, he fought in World War II and took part in the D-Day invasion of Normandy, for which he was later awarded the Normandy Medal of the Jubilee of Liberty by the French government. That's a mouthful. Married with three kids, the family moved to Sitka, Alaska in 1960, where Porky was working for a logging company. In 1964, he started his own business, Porky's Equipment, Inc., selling and servicing logging gear. Woohoo! You see, Porky was a very talented logger and was famous for the ending act he performed every year at the All-Alaska Logging Championships. He could cut down a tree and make it land wherever he wanted to. But our friend Porky here was best known as a prankster, a reputation he enjoyed even before this next stunt. Some of his pranks included using a backhoe to drop an entire tree in the middle of a friend's driveway or placing plastic flamingos in trees to confuse tour boats looking for wildlife. 
But it was the eruption of Mount Edgecombe that made Oliver Porky Bicker a legend throughout Alaska and the world. When he awoke that cold April morning, he looked out his window and could see right across the sound. The idea to ignite the volcano had occurred to Porky three years earlier. Soon as he had the idea, he collected 70 old tires that he kept in an airplane hangar. He waited all this time until the visibility conditions were just right for the prank. Porky also secured the assistance of some of his fellow prankster friends, part of a group calling itself the Dirty Dozen that used to meet every week for coffee. As the pranksters waited for the chopper, they piled the tires in two large canvas slings. Soon the pilot arrived and they attached the slings to the bottom of the chopper. They also took along some smoke bombs, several gallons of kerosene, and some rags. Now in the very center of a giant dormant volcano crater at the top of Mount Edgecombe in Sitka, Alaska, the men piled the tires into a stack, poured the kerosene, and lit them on fire. As thick black smoke began to bellow skywards, the crew got back in the chopper and headed home. The deed was done. Residents of Sitka, Alaska woke on Monday, April 1st, 1974 to a bright, clear, crisp day. They could see right across the Sitka Sound where the familiar sight of Mount Edgecombe, the dormant volcano, dominated the skyline. But today, something was a little different about the view. A menacing plume of black smoke was rising from the crater. It looks as if the volcano is ready to explode! People spilling out of their homes and into the streets to gaze up at the smoldering volcano. The Coast Guard ordered a chopper to be sent out to investigate immediately. Get to the chopper! As the Coast Guard pilot approached Mount Edgecombe, the plume of smoke grew in size. Finally, he was right above it, and he peered down into the crater. At first, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He looked closer, and then he laughed. Stacked in the cone of the volcano, burning with a greasy flame, was a huge pile of old tires. And spray painted in the snow beside the tires, in 50-foot-high black letters, were the words, April Fools! The prank succeeded beyond Porky's wildest dreams, and news of it got picked up by the Associated Press and ran in papers around the world. Even the Coast Guard wasn't too mad about the stunt. The reaction of the people in Sitka once they realized the volcano wasn't really erupting was almost uniformly positive. That is the story of Oliver Porky Bicker and the eruption of Mount Edgecombe. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Now I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna go when the volcano blows. Let me say it now. I don't know. The 
is Our American Stories. And up next, well, this segment combines two of our favorite things, history and music, which brings us to Jesse's This Week in Music History. This Week in Music History, 1982, Survivor goes number one in the charts with the theme from Rocky III, Eye of the Tiger. Their only chart topper, Survivor, won the Grammy Award for Best Rock Performance for the song. Now, even though it was the theme song for Rocky III, it was Sylvester Stallone's second choice after the British rock band Queen denied permission to use Another One Bites the Dust for the film. And another one gone, and another one gone, another one bites the dust, yeah. Hey, I'm gonna get you too, another one bites the dust. And in 2008, this week in music history, the first guitar torched on stage by Jimi Hendrix sold for over $360,000 at an auction for rock memorabilia. The Fender Stratocaster was burned at the end of a London show in 1967. The sale also included the Beatles' first management contract signed in 62 by all four members of the group and manager Brian Epstein. It sold for over $300,000. And born this week in music history, 1981, Beyonce, American singer, songwriter, dancer, and actress. With Destiny's Child, she had the 2000 U.S. number one single with Say My Name and the 2001 U.S. and U.K. number one single and album Survivor. Throughout her career, she sold an estimated 100 million records as a solo artist and a further 60 million records with the group Destiny's Child. She's won 22 Grammy Awards and is the most nominated woman in the awards history. Here's Beyonce on what it took for her to achieve success. I'm competitive, really, with myself, honestly. Like, I, every time I start an album, I go and watch all of my performances, and I try to figure out, okay, what is it that I could have done better, or what worked? I'm really tough on me, more so than, than anyone else. And born this week in music history, 1934, Edward Kill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that exactly you might be asking well he was a russian baritone singer first known to international audiences in 2009 when a 1976 recording of him singing what has now become known as the trollolo song turned up online the video which was first published on youtube scored over 3 million views its first month the original upload currently has over 26 million views after his singing career faded in the early 1990s kill re-entered private life and worked in a cafe in paris singing cabaret The release of such an obscure Russian singer with such a bizarre, non-lyrical song gave Edouard some short-lived international fame just before his death in 2012. While he was a little confused as to why his music had gained such popularity so many years later, he did embrace his chance at 15 minutes of fame with pride and dignity. In music history, 1964, The Animals started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with House of the Rising Sun. There is a house in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. Like 
like many classic folk ballads, nobody exactly knows who wrote The House of the Rising Sun. The Animals version of the song was recorded in just one take in May of 64. released, the record company printed the time of the song on the record as three minutes, feeling that the real time of four minutes was too long for radio airplay. And born this week in music history, 1946, Freddie Mercury, the one and only lead singer of Queen. Freddie's voice had a recording range of three, almost four octaves, the majority of his singing falling in the tenor range. Although a flamboyant entertainer on stage, Freddie was very shy in real life and hardly ever gave interviews. His favorite artists were Aretha Franklin and Jimi Hendrix. Like a rhinestone cowboy. In 1975, This Week in Music History, Glenn Campbell started a two-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Rhinestone Cowboy, his first number one after 13 top 40 hits. The record gained three Grammy nominations and was the Country Music Association Song of the Year for 1976. Also born this week in music history, 1932, Patsy Cline, country music singer. She died at just 30 years old in March of 63 at the height of her career in a plane crash. While walking after midnight out in the moonlight Just like we used to do I'm always walking after midnight searching for you Ten years after her death in 1973, she became the first female solo artist inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. And in 2004, this week in music history, U.S. guitar maker Ernie Ball died after a long illness. In the late 1950s, Ball opened up the first music store in the United States in Tarzana, California to sell guitars exclusively. He then developed the guitar strings known as Slinkies, specifically designed for rock and roll electric guitar. Here's Brian Ball, Ernie Ball's grandson, talking about the birth of Ernie Ball guitar strings. Our company and family has has a lot of roots in trying to solve problems. My grandfather, in a lot of ways, was a maverick entrepreneur and really established a great deal of innovation uh, in our company and where we're at today. After he got out of the war, the Korean War that is, he had one thing that he was extremely passionate about and that was guitar. So he opened the first ever guitar-only shop and he put a music studio, a teaching studio, in the back of his building. He quickly found out that, that students and kids, they didn't have the strength or dexterity in their fingers to bend the strings properly that were available at the time. So he went to Leo Fender and, and Gibson and, and a variety of other companies at the time and said, hey, we need to make skinnier strings. Well, he said, Ernie, you're, you're nuts. You're just, you're crazy. So he started uh, actually private labeling uh, banjo frailing strings inside his package sets of Ernie Ball strings. That's how Slinkies were born. They were born 
like many innovations are, out of a problem that existed, and my grandfather created a solution. Fast forward 50 years, today we're the number one selling electric guitar string brand in the world. So I'm glad he was stubborn, and uh, fortunately, our company has long roots of, of innovation. And in 1965, this week in music history, the Rolling Stones were at number one in the UK with I Can't Get No Satisfaction, giving the band their fourth UK number one single. Keith Richards recorded a rough version of the guitar riff in a Florida hotel room. He ran through it once before falling asleep. Here's Keith Richards. I just dreamt it and put it on the tape and went to sleep again. And so I run it back to the beginning and there's... Three times, and uh, I can't get no satisfaction. And then it's me snoring for 45 minutes. And in 1992, Nirvana's Chris Novoselic knocked himself unconscious during the MTV Music and Video Awards after being hit on the head with his own guitar after throwing it up in the air. And born this week in music history, 1941, Otis Redding, American singer, songwriter, and record producer. After appearing at the 1967 Monterey Pop Festival, Redding wrote and recorded his iconic Sitting on the Dock of the Bay with Steve Cropper. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships rolling Then I'll watch them roll away Sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time The song became the first posthumous number one recorded hit on the Billboard Hot 100. Redding was killed in a plane crash in December of 67. And that's this week in music history. This is Our American Stories. I've got nothing and great job, as always, on these, Jesse. And we've got to do a long segment on the life of Otis Redding. It's something I'm just starting to dig into, a book on his life. And as always, this is Our American Stories, our This Week in Music History, brought to us by our Cracker Jack producer, Jesse Edwards. Let's take it out with Otis Redding. Look like nothing's gonna change Everything seems to stay the same I can't do what ten people tell me to do So I guess I'll remain the same Sitting here resting my bones This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories of every kind. And one of our favorite things to do is to talk about history, and always are these days in history are sponsored by Hillsdale College. We also have done a lot of commencement speeches, including some from Hillsdale itself. We've never done a convocation speech before, but this one was so unusual and so good that we have to bring it to you. And it's by the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn, and you're not going to hear a convocation speech like this anywhere in the United States. Here's how he started things. Have any mothers cried yet? Would you hold up your hand? Yeah, okay. It's going to get worse. 
before it gets better. Hillsdale College is a bad news first kind of place. There are 394 of these freshmen, that's 24 over the goal, and that means many of you can be spared. <laughs> See, how was that, Dustin? Yeah. <laughs> We're starting out hard here today. Uh, you come from the largest applicant pool we've ever had, and you have the average entering standardized, the highest we've ever had by a smidgen over last year. So on the average, you're really smart, which is fully compatible with profound ignorance. <laughs> and then Dr. Arn took a pause, a long one actually, and awkward for most speakers, but not this college president because he was pondering what next to say, looking down at his notes, thinking about them, and then delivered his message from the heart about the purpose of a liberal arts education. But what is it to be like this? The young, seeking to do something that has very little in a direct way to what they're going to do for a living, come and study with people who are older and wiser, and they all learn together. That is the phenomenon. I've had people, you know, we have, I forget now, I think we have a 1.5 million online students. And then, you know, and it's growing faster last year than the year before. Lord knows how many there'll be, right? But there's about 1,500 of us here. And there's about 160 faculty sitting right there, the most important of the professional people here, by the way. And that ratio and the expense and trouble of all of this, you freshmen, you're about to get acquainted with the trouble. And then when the trouble really comes upon you, then you're going to call mom and dad and they're going to get acquainted with the trouble. Then, then why? Why that? Well, it comes out, we have come here to think in exactly that way that is a synonym for talking. Because you know, animals show every sign of thinking they just don't talk, and we do. And that thing that goes on in our soul that makes the kind of thinking we can do, that goes on between us when we converse, and that means we were made to think together. And especially if you think about things that are ultimate things, things that will last your whole life, and you're 18, and you don't know any better than that boy back there what you're going to do with your life or what's going to happen to you, right? But what you know is there are some things you need to know because everyone needs to know them if they are to live a rich and happy and significant life. And we are here to do that. That's what's hard. It's joyful. You'll love it. But also hard. Get your boots on. Places here are scarce. They're for the willing and the able, and those are both very high qualifications. You know, it sounded as if Dr. Arn were speaking before a group of incoming Marines. And in a sense, it's like that at Hillsdale College. Very high standards, a lot's expected, and it's going to be good, but it's going to be hard. And not enough young people hear both of those things when entering universities across this country. And then we got to the guts of Dr. Arn's speech, and again, a speech you're never going to hear in any college by any college president 
in America, Dr. Arn, talking about things like being good and what it means. We're going to study our way up toward heaven. That's the thing that happens here. If you just think you want to be an excellent person, surely you want that. Of course you want that. You can't help but want it. Well, you'll find out that as you improve yourself, you're reaching upwards, not down. And so before we get to heaven, the road to heaven involves being good. And I'm sorry to inform you that you're going to have to learn to define that word. And if you can do it right now, I'll give you five bucks. Especially if you'll give me ten if you can't. You have to be morally good. That means what? Just, courageous, and moderate. Truthful. All of those things, right? You have to behave yourself here. You'll find that we don't govern the place mostly by rules. There are some rules. But they're not important because, for example, if somebody ever gets in enough trouble to get into my office, which happens once or twice every other year, something like that, then I always, I, I can never remember what rule they violated. I always say, you remember where you are? Only once in seven, 17 years, I think we've had the honor code for 14 years, only once have I ever gone out a student's honor code and asked him to verify his signature. But I said, you know, and I, I just said, did you sign that document? And he just, you know, big old football player boy, and he just got really tiny. And I said, what did you do again? And of course, he was deeply ashamed. I didn't have to do anything to him. He kept begging me to punish him. I said, I'm not here to punish you. I'm here to be your friend. And Dr. Oren then dug in on the importance of the honor code and its connection to being good and the connection to everything that happens at Hillsdale College. Take a listen. So you have to be good. And you promise to be. And I just want you to understand the significance of the honor code because what it means is we govern this place by goals and goals are intrusive. That means you have agreed to them. That means you can't violate the code without getting caught because you catch yourself. Duh. And that means we're not really very concerned about your behavior. It'll be fine, except when it's not, and it won't take long to fix it. That boy, by the way, when I read, I made him verify his signature on his honor code. I'm a reference for him now. He came back to my office twice to beg me to punish him, and I said, you just go put this right. And he said, how do I do that? And I said, I don't know. I didn't make that mess. It was a kind of bad thing he did, and I said, you know, I'm angry enough at you because you spoke ill to one of my staff members, a lady, and you did something to a girl that you didn't like. Wasn't that bad, but it was bad. I said, uh, you know, if you don't put this right, I'm going to erase this time from your life, and you'll never be able to come back here. I'll ban you for 40 years till you're dead. <laughs> so, you know, I was really working him over. But I didn't have to do any of that. Why? He longs to be good. And we all do. And this is what they do there at Hillsdale College. It's magical, actually. I'd, I'd urge anyone within listening distance or even not to go there and see the special things they do. And what a teaching moment for Dr. Orn. 
Just go put this right, he told that young man. Live up to the honor code you swore to uphold. I love what he said. You can't violate the code because you'll get caught. You'll catch yourself. Fantastic stuff. When we come back, the speech you'll only hear at Hillsdale College, because in the end, it's the only college in America, but for possibly West Point, Annapolis, that teaches this stuff, the important stuff. The beautiful things that matter in life. Being good. Being a good and excellent person. This is Lee Habib. Hillsdale College's story. The convocation before the freshman class this year. And Dr. Larry Arn. More of all of it after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the convocation speech at Hillsdale College by Dr. Larry Arn, and this is about as good a speech as any kid could hear in any college, only Hillsdale's not any college, and it only makes sense at Hillsdale College because the college is, well, it's put together to reinforce all of the values and all of the things that Dr. Arn's talking about in this convocation speech. Let's continue. There'll be these obstacles. You're young. Your body is stronger every day. Pleasures mean more to you with every passing day. You are made that way. The pleasures indicate something to you that's worth having almost always, although of course you want too much of it or in the wrong time and way. You have to learn to listen to those, but they cannot govern you. And then intellectually, it's going to be hard. Because I promise you're going to discover that you can't say a sentence about the things you know the most about without some learned person asking you what those words mean, and you'll find that you don't know. And it's like starting over again, and it's hard. And then everybody's made A's. What's the average grade point average here? Three nine, three nine five, or something like that? Forget that. That's over, right? I think last year the average freshman grade point average was 2.9. And so you'll cry and say, I've always made A's. And we'll say, okay, sure. This is college now. That's different. Right? And and you'll think, I'm going to despair. That's when you need assertiveness and courage. And you must have those. You must work on those. And everyone here will help you with that. No one out there, and I won't tell you who they are today, but there's about eight guys down there that are, and girls that are just ogres about grading. I mean, they just, it's just, it's, they could be prosecuted. <laughs> and yet, their classes fill up, right? Everybody down there is really bad, and there's a few of them that are just worse, you know? And, and, They care deeply, and they will help you, right? You must not despair. It is a failure of courage to do that. If you start looking like somebody from the scene of The Walking Dead, which we will all look to, 
look like in the first week of December, right? Then if you start doing that too early, get help. We'll help you. But then there's this other thing. It's the opposite side, and you mustn't do this either. And remember when I say you mustn't? You mustn't for two reasons, because you've agreed not to, or you will by tomorrow night, or else you'll be going home, right? Or more than that, I say we all need this. You need this. And we all need it. I love when he looks around at all those kids and says, what's the average out there, 3.9 in high school? Forget that. That's over. Beautiful. Let's listen to more Dr. Arn's speech to the incoming freshmen. It is hard to sit for hours at a time and concentrate, especially when you're nagged that it's too much and you can never really get it. You'll need your courage. But then when you get it and you start putting things together and you start articulating things that you didn't know, and you then begin to get a glimpse that these things are beautiful. Oh, you'll have this thing that'll happen and you'll, and you'll sit back and you'll say, that was satisfying to learn for its own sake and it will never stop. You will encounter a pleasure most self-sufficient and abiding. And when you get that, you must not be cocky about it. You must work harder and get it more. And then you'll be able to give it to others for the rest of your life. And then you can save the world. Which is what we do here. Dr. Rarn then addresses the comparison between Hillsdale and all of the crazy things that are happening on campuses across the country where kids are essentially doing their own thing. If you think that you've come here because you want to do whatever you want to do, well, we've got 2,499 competitors, and they'll all let you do that. You've just chosen the wrong one. Can't have happened by chance. Well, what are they, what are they doing, right? They tell these kids that there isn't anything valuable to know, or they tell them that their consciousness, which is a term of art in historicism, is formed by their gender and their race and their class and all these background things, right? And then they demonstrate and they take over the president's office. Well, we have no threat of that here. I only bring it up as a positive thing because that's going on in the world. And it hasn't for most of the history of this college, which is almost 175 years old. We can learn from that. You see, what are the arguments they're actually making? And they do constitute an overwhelming and stark alternative to what we do here. And so we can look at that and say, what is the argument that's actually there? What are they doing? Like, you know, the way it looks to me, of course, I'm an old man and, you know, so very learned and all that. Uh, I always, you know, first time I saw a bunch of them marching in a place where I got a lot of my education, I was sitting with my wife and we were watching the news, and they were taking over a building that I know, and they were demanding changes to the curriculum. And they're 19 years old. And I said, you know, somebody needs to stop those kids and ask them to define the word curriculum. Because <laughs> they've never completed one, right? How would they know? It's hard for us to do that. Well, my point then is, we are an alternative that is very different, and we get to go through the hard job of making a case for that under pressure 
when we defy the examples. If you got the crazy idea that you were going to take over one of the college buildings, I'll just tell you that that's a simple problem. Um, the college property belongs to the college. Who does the college belong to? All nonprofits and colleges are a, a singularly important and dignified form of that, along with churches the most. All nonprofits belong to their beneficiaries. This college doesn't belong to you, and it doesn't belong to me, and it doesn't belong to the board. It belongs to the beneficiaries, and you freshmen are about to become our immediate beneficiaries, and for four years. But the beneficiaries also include all those who come after you. The board has its authority because it acts for them. The faculty has its authority because it possesses the knowledge to pass on the, the things that the college was founded to pursue, which are four and which you have to learn what they are. Because you have to serve them, you see. I'm saying this isn't ours. We are here to protect and preserve it and pass it on. We will keep our humility about that. Then Dr. Warren transitioned away from addressing the students and to addressing this other important part of their community. Finally, parents. You two are part of our partnership. The immediate blessing for you that we do not take any money from the government is we can send you your child's grades, and we are going to do that. Sometimes they don't like it. And uh, I have a device I've used. I've only had to use it once. There was a, a, a girl, a favorite girl of mine. She's a school teacher now, Raylene Kucinich. And she protested about that. And she said, Dr. Arn, I worked all summer and all time here and paid for my own college. Why would you send it to my parents? So I had the envelope readdressed to the parents of the very mature and independent Raylene Kucinich. <laughs> she thinks that's funny now, too. She didn't at the time. If you come for Parents Weekend, which you must, hundreds come, it's crazy, it's not, nowhere else like it, we will all sit, we all think it's kind of cheesy but also inspiring, and we will sit at tables with little name tags and people ring bells and you get 10 minutes with every one of these if your kids got, got this. And I do that too, we all do. And that means you're in the mix, you're part of this place, and you're about to take a pledge to say so. Now there's bad news that comes from this too. Because you have to look at this in the old-fashioned way. In the very unlikely event that we have a dispute with your child, you are on our side. For sure, immediately, and without any question. You can find out later who's wrong, and then you can switch sides if you want to. You won't. Because why? Because if you've got a complaint, we'll listen to it. And you know, we're not bad at this. It's what we do for a living. We will include you. We are all on the same side. And anytime we have a real dispute going on among us, we try to settle that right away because that's not what colleges do. What they do is argue about things they all love. And here's how Dr. Arn closed things off. I said to the provost, of course a friend of mine, as we were all processing in here because we get to stand up there and watch the faculty come in, and it's fun, you know, we're all excited today. This is a cool day. And I said to him, you know, it's fun. Also, it's holy, isn't it? This is one of the most serious things that human beings can do. We're starting today. May God guide, bless, and protect us in the work. 
Welcome. And there you have it, a speech you'll not hear anywhere else in this country but at Hillsdale College. And by the way, I have the honor of teaching there two weeks a year. And more importantly, I have the honor of studying there. I crash those classes, and it's fun because the people there expect so much of you. And they demand it. And everybody enjoys it. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale because you never had this experience, Hillsdale can come to you through their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. And Hillsdale College, the place to go to study all the things that matter in life, that are beautiful in life. Thanks, Dr. Larry Arn, for that convocation. And thanks for the support. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories and we came across a great story in the wall street journal and the headline was mascots are getting a hall of fame and it's making benny the bull emotional and so when you get a headline like that you got to dig in and the wall street journal does so many really great americana stories on their front page that's the wallstreetjournal.com go there and subscribe wsj.com and joining us Well, we had to talk to David Raymond because, well, he's the guy behind all this. And David, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And anytime that we're talking about furry fun, um, I got to be a part of it. Well, David, to start with, you were the original Philly fanatic from 1978 to 1993. And bless your heart, if I could be any mascot anywhere, I would have wanted to be the Philly fanatic. What fun watching him or her. Was there ever a her do his or her well, thing? Yeah, yeah, there actually is. There's, there's uh, Phoebe, who is the fanatic's mother, and Phyllis, who is, um, let's just call her his special interest. <laughs> uh-huh. Very nice. And what was that? How did you audition for that job? How did you prepare for that job? Is there, is there a way to prepare for the role the way an actor would prepare for a role? Well, it's it's funny, you know, with what we do with our business, you know, we, we find and performers, train performers, we place performers a full-time job. Um, uh, we we help the um, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers fill their new performer position, um, and, and we do it quite frequently. So there's a real process now, but back when I started, I was the guy that was dumb enough to say yes to having a 300-pound green furry Muppet entertain the same fans at Boots and the Easter Bunny. So... Um, I was low man on the totem pole. I was an intern from in 76 and 77 with the Phillies. And 78, when they created what looked like a very bad idea on paper, um, they needed a few things. And one of them was somebody to commit to stay for all the games. And I, I was doing that. I'm a big Phillies fan. Um, very good friends with the Carpenter family who, who owned the ball club before Bill Giles and his group purchased it. And, um, you know, it was a it was a dream for me to be there as an intern. I, and I was doing the worst jobs you can imagine. So I figured, you know, so what? I figured this thing will last for a couple of weeks and, and it'll be panned in the media. And 
but I can always say I was the guy that first put on that crazy costume that they that they threw away. So uh, so there was no plan. There was no preparation. Frankly, I had to go to the Phillies and say, what is it that you want me to do? And and they said, go out and have fun. And when I went when I went running out of the room after they told me that, because I thought, well, this is great. I'm getting paid to have fun. They screamed at me, G-rated fun. <laughs> they, were, they just told a college student to go have a good time. And that was his prime directive. So um, you know, no, no real plan. It, it, we were just, um, it, we were just throwing stuff up on the wall and this was one of those things that stuck. And what a beautiful thing and what a beautiful prerogative to be given. I mean, you had a clean slate. You could just about do anything you wanted to do in front of thousands and thousands of people. And you got to hang out in a ballpark. Oh yeah. And, and what was even more exciting for somebody my age, you know, 20 years old at the time, um, was that, you know, I was a huge uh, baseball fan, and I was a huge Phillies fan. I got to mingle and and mix and get to know um, the, the Phillies players, and and had some still have some long standing friendships with them, uh, and then met the the visiting players, even though they didn't know who I was, but they, they knew who the fanatic was, and I it was like living a dream, and and actually for a little bit pretending uh, like I was a member of a major league baseball team, or I was like a player. So, so that was the you know the icing on the cake. It was, and you got you got to see some pretty great teams. There were some really great Philadelphia Philly team, Phillies teams during that time, weren't there? Well, it was really the beginning of um, un- until 2008. Um, it, it, their run, it was the beginning of the Phillies' first real sustained uh, success on the field. So they had the year before they had made it to. Um, you know, into the playoffs, but got beat uh, by the Dodgers, and um, our, our hopes were dashed once again. And when the Fanatic was created, it started that movement into not only uh, winning, um, you know, a National League championship, but uh, winning a World Series. So, yeah. so it was really a wonderful time. Uh, through my tenure, they they made it to three World Series. They they won one and and had a number of. Uh, um, you know, those National League championships. So it was really, really uh, uh, the best time uh, to have you know, been part of the team. Hey, did sure. you get a ring? Did you get a ring? I, I did, actually. I got three yes. rings. I, I, I have a World Series ring from 80, and I have the two losers rings from, from 83 and 93. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of public speaking, and, and I do meet and greets afterwards, and people just love to come up and see those rings, try them on, take selfies. So, it, it, that has been a really fun thing for me to stay connected with the Philadelphia fans that way. So you've had a big fight with your wife. You're really bummed out or you're just hung over. How does the Philly fanatic get psyched up and just get it done? Well, you know, it's, it really is about the power of fun. It, you know, I went through, uh, you know, the, I, I went through my marriage training program, like a lot of people could can relate to out there. And uh, I was devastated when my first marriage didn't make it. And my my mother, unfortunately, passed away when she was 59 from brain cancer. And those both of those times were when at the height of my work as a fanatic. And when I was going through those difficult things, I at times I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. And what I found out very quickly was working in costume was the, the perfect distraction. And I discovered people were drawn to the fanatic and are drawn to mascots because it's this powerful fun. It's, it's the distraction of silly entertainment that for the moment that you're involved, you forget all your problems. So as the performer, I had the ability to be somebody completely different. So I had that distraction continuously or any time that I wanted it. 
So my job became one of the healthiest functions uh, for my emotion and my, you know, my, you know, for my, my mental activity. You it bet. was the best. You bet. And by the way, I might add that it's a relief and release for a lot of people that go to the park, too. David, I think that's why so many people love sports. A distraction from the ordinary burdens and strains and stresses of regular life. We're talking to David Raymond. And by the way, I love your title, the Emperor of Fun and Games at Raymond Entertainment Group. And he's also the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. We'll get into that in a bit after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories talking to David Raymond and we're talking about mascots and by the way people love their mascots we're going to get into it in a little bit about college mascots professional mascots the variety the full the full scope some of them funny some of them serious everything from wolverines to blue hens and we're going to cover them all but a little bit more about you David and and this idea of a hall of fame Um, when did it come to you and what were the difficulties in bringing this to light? Well, it was like, like a lot of great ideas. Uh, it wasn't mine. That's the first thing. Uh, I, I wish it was completely mine, but it was actually my, my employee, Chris Bruce, uh, had come to me after the, um, the sausages were attacked in Milwaukee. If you remember that episode where Randall Simon hit one of the, uh, one of the famous sausages over the head as it ran by the dugout uh, in Miller Park that day. And it became a big news story. I was getting calls from all the major uh, um, news brands, CBS, NBC, and on, uh, Fox, uh, NPR. They all called me, wanted to know what we thought of this this mascot abuse. And we decided to do a mascot march on the city of Philadelphia to introduce a Bill of Rights for mascots as a (laughs) kind of a silly, fun promotion. And we got so much media coverage, we did it the second year. And that was 2003-2004. And in 2005, Chris came up to me in the office and said, hey, this is the time for us to have a Mascot Hall of Fame. We've talked about it before. You know, let's leverage all this fun we've had. And that's what we did. And we inducted that first year, of course, the Fanatic, the Phoenix Gorilla, and the, the famous Chicken from San Diego. Yep. The three, arguably the three characters that changed, you know, the genre, the genre of mascots. And, uh, and we had, again, tremendous success. The owner of the Phoenix Suns actually came all the way from, he's a billionaire, Robert Sarver, came to Philadelphia to introduce the Phoenix Gorilla. And, and I knew when he showed up, I said, this is really tapping into a real passion. People love and believe in their mascot brands like they're real. And when they get an honor like this, they take it seriously. Um, so from that point forward, we, we've inducted 17 total uh, mascots including um, 10 pro and seven colleges. And we did a number of live inductions, both and also in front of the, the inductees crowds. And the city of Whiting called me about four years ago and said, we want you here. We're the silly little wacky city that could. And, and it's a perfect 
you know, entertainment piece for us. We're building an entertainment complex. We've we've built a beautiful uh, lakefront on Lake Michigan. It's only 30 miles south uh, east of Chicago and um, in northwest Indiana. And it was perfect. You know, we went there. We met with the mayor. And sure enough, here we are groundbreaking. The, the bulldozers just dug the hole the other day. And uh, in 2018 early, we're going to open the doors to the Mascot Hall of Fame. Well, I love some of the puns here. There's a lot of physical education happening there. And the fur is coming. And But the thing is, it's not just all fun and games. In the article, in the Wall Street Journal article, I'm going to read just to touch to you because it's so good. Barry Anderson, who performed for more than a decade at Chicago, at Chicago Bulls games as Benny the Bull, who isn't a member of the Hall, choked up when simply talking about the prospect. I get very emotional about the work, said Mr. Anderson, who is known for his acrobatic trampoline dunks during timeouts and firing T-shirts into the crowd using a bullzooka. Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, the feathery frontman for the NHL Chicago Blackhawks, are considered strong candidates for the Hall this year, says David Raymond. And, and what I love about this is you're doing the same sort of marketing and lead-up that the NFL Hall of Fame does, that the Baseball Hall of Fame does. And, and how's that working? Is the sports world and the media picking up on this each year? It, it, it is. We, and that's what we were taught all the way back in 2003 when we did that mascot march. Anytime you get a group of mascots together, it looks funny, so B-roll footage looks great. Um, it, it, it is funny. Um, it, it's, it's a perfect story as a kicker at the end of a broadcast, and, and we just continue to get that type of excitement. However, it's become even more emotional and connected because we're in the midst of a, of a popular vote right now where you can go on mascothalloffame.com and vote on the current ballot, which, by the way, fast forward, does include Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, uh, as well as Slugger, Stuff from Orlando, Harry Dog from Georgia, um, and, and the Penn State Nittany Lions. So you can vote for any of those right now. And it's, it's just built tremendous passion and emotion with the constituents and the fans and, and alumni and, uh, and faculty um, and people in those organizations. So um, it's been really relatively easy to do. I, I mean, the Phillies just gave us the largest grant uh, that any Major League Baseball team has done. Uh, we're going to other all other major league organizations and asking for philanthropic support. It's it's a nonprofit organization, yep. um, and we're we're teaching STEM and STEAM principles to elementary school kids as the backdrop of the educational piece to probably what would be best described as the Disney of mascots. It's going to be an unbelievable environment for families and people who want to come back again and again. It's just really a wonderful. Um, wonderful facility. And we're talking to David Raymond, and mascothalloffame.com is where you can go. He also runs Raymond Entertainment Group. They're in the serious business of developing and creating full-character branding programs and mascots for sports teams, colleges, and universities, and also corporations. And actually, uh, Our American Stories, we're going to need a mascot, too, so we'll have to talk about that offline. <laughs> You know, one of the funny stories I like is, my goodness, people are really politicking for this, like the Oscars. Jazz Bear from the Utah Jazz, Bas Jazz basketball team submitted a video in which Utah Senator Orrin Hatch extolled the mascot significance in the community. And the video ends with a camera panning out to reveal Jazz Bear polishing the senator's shoes. That's really good. I love this stuff. It is good, and you, and you know, just it, Lee, it's interesting with the you know with the political climate we're in, with um, you know with all kinds of um, push and pull, the, whatever side that you're on, 
um, and some nastiness for sure. You know, maybe the end of some political correctness that, that cuts down on creativity. And when you see a guy like Orrin Hatch willing to, you know, have a little bit of fun in a video that's a little less reverent, and he does it because it's part of a mascot routine. That is what mascots do. It, 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 we step off of our perch for a minute and say, yeah, I can have a little bit of fun. And if, it can, if we can get somebody like Orrin Hatch to poke some fun at himself, you know, we're, we're I mean, I, as the fanatic, I, I ran into uh, Ted Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy and, and, and worked with all kinds of celebrities and, and politicians. And every single one of them stops for a moment, gets a hug and a kiss and a high five from, from a mascot. So exactly. it, it works. It really is powerful. Exactly. Let's talk about some of the some of the work you do developing mascots and the like. What what goes into that? Somebody calls you up and says, you know, we're we're thinking about you know something. And I mean, how do how does how does somebody pitch you? How do you do your work? How do you do your business? Well, the first the first thing that happened. I mean, we use we use our backstory as being experts in the business in thirty eight years of of being successful. That's how we get people to us. But when they start with us, they all want to know what it looks like, and we tell them quickly. What it looks like is about fourth or fifth on the priority list. The first thing that you need to do is you need to plan for success, you know, like any other business venture. But second, the most important thing that you do is it's about storytelling. So we tell all of our clients to go back and try to develop the concept of a story that connects with their, their organization, their, their alumni, their fans, their community, and build a story that automatically will have buy-in from those audience uh, touch points. Uh, Disney taught that. You know, Disney said, you know, when Bambi's mother gets killed in the first few minutes uh, of that movie, you think, my gosh, this is a this is a cartoon movie done by Disney, and here's a, you know, a mother gets murdered in front of its uh, of its young. Uh, how can that be Disney? Well, Disney got you to care about the characters. So for us, it's storytelling and making a flawed character that people can relate to and that they'll care about. If you do those things you will have a wonderful, powerful character brand. And by the way, it's not always fun and games. You know, a lot of these mascots, like the great, you know, characters, the old cartoon characters like Wiley e. Coyote, I mean, they have a little devilish side and playful side to them. And sometimes there are even some fights. Talk about that line that the mascot has to draw between being too nice and being a little devilish. Well, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it, tempers flare uh, when there's passion. So I, I've seen more mascot, actual real mascot fights in the collegiate environment because of, of, of how passionate and important those games are. Um, but, you know, there's occasional fan that's had a few uh, adult beverages that decides that he doesn't like the mascot, uh, you know, putting his arm around his girlfriend. Um, <laughs> so you, it, it's a sixth sense that you have or it's common sense that you have to try to keep your wits about you. And, and, and one thing is to make sure you take breaks before you get tired, because when you get tired, you make bad decisions. But it's a dangerous environment. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, mascot injuries. So so it's not the easiest job in the world. you got to be safe and take care of yourself and, and use your common sense. You bet. And when we come back, we're going to run through a whole bunch of mascots, some of the favorites here on the show. And we're going to tell a mascot story about old Miss mascot, Colonel Reb who was sort of put in a lockbox, and then their new mascot had to come in, and, well, nobody likes the new mascot. And what's it like to be a mascot that's not loved? That's got to be a bummer. This is Our American Stories, the Mascot Hall of Fame. More after these messages.
American Stories in our final segment with David Raymond, the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. He also runs Raymond Entertainment Group, and that's RaymondEG.com. And by the way, he has Dave Raymond's Mascot Boot Camp, which Alex should go to, too, and see what that's like. Uh, we want to go through some great mascots now, and uh, we want to tell a great mascot story as well about old Mrs. Mascot. But let's run through the two different types of mascots. They're, they're kind in the costumes, sort of the entertainment mascots, and they're the, there are those beloved prized animals. Um, talk about some of the great mascots you don't have at the Hall of Fame because they're actually living, or do you? Well, you know, it's, it, is, it is a discussion we've had. We have a criteria, believe it or not. Even, even though our tongue's firmly planted in our cheeks, we, we do have a process. And the criteria does state that it needs to be a costumed character. So it would, uh, based on that criteria, it eliminates uh, either the, the live animals or some of the human beings. Um, but we think that there's going to be a place for those types of characters. We think there's going to be a place for the actual performers, which we're not talking about highlighting yet. Um, you know, and, and certainly some of the human characters. Uh, um, you know, Max Packin was the one who started, well, Al Schacht before him and Mal pa- Max Packin. They were the first human characters that were somewhat like clowns that entertained during baseball games uh, in the 50s. Um, and Max, you know, continued on until, um, you know, the late 70s. Uh, so so they, they kind of set the tone for that, that I think the chicken came after that. But great animal like like Uga for the University of Georgia um and Harry Dog happens to be the 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 costume character that's on the ballot this year but Uga you know there's a long line of these revered uh bulldogs that are actually buried uh right uh, as part of the stadium complex where people go as a pilgrimage to see the graves of the Uggas i mean it's wonderful love and passion uh war eagle for auburn is an, is another example of a of an animal mascot, and, and there are there are many um, that are used in the case of stirring up the crowd or, or getting this great passion um, behind those, and they are usually combined with a um, you know with a costume character as well. Um, Florida State was an example you brought up where where they have the chief that comes out and puts the spear into the ground at the fifty yard line, and, and I mean you've never heard a stadium erupt any louder than I never he heard any that. sound like that in my life and I thought to be that chief just once it and come on to a stadium and do that it wow would be phenomenal and yep. and you know and and it's a skilled person who can ride a horse and the horse is beautiful and 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 I think it's a wonderful reflection um you know of that uh, of that community that has agreed uh that they appreciate that type of reverence that uh Florida State gives them and, and that's why they were not struck down by the NCAA's uh, requirement to do so, because, um, you know, that that Indian uh, tribe had had said this is something that's reverent and revered. And, and we appreciate that type of illustration. Yep. So so it works. I mean, it, you know, political correctness aside, there's times when these things work because of the pure passion and understanding of the fan base. You bet. And so let's rip through, and I know you can't be partial in these matters, but talk about some of the, 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 the great characters through history and up to the present uh, in college and in pro sports, uh, and, and particularly which sports do the best job at this and which sports have the most mascots. Is football Does football do a better job? Does baseball uh, do a better job? Which sport has the most mascots? 
Well, I, I would I would say that the, the the one organization top to bottom that appreciates it, that stewards mascot brands, uh, that merchandises mascot brands the best is the NBA. Um, and it, and I appreciate the understanding from the New York office. They 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 actually give an award out to the best NBA mascot of the year, uh, and they send people out to watch the NBA environment and. Uh, game ops and entertainment they give them awards for each of those and the, and the, every year the mascot the nba gives uh one of the mascots that title uh, so i so i really appreciate what the nba does i think the lowest on the scale of those uh, um, of all of those items would be the nhl or maybe even soccer and that's in part because the culture and the history of those sports has never been um i guess the best way to describe it, has never been fond of the concept of a mascot being powerful some of them have them, and some of them do them do them well in the NHL. But for the most part, the culture of hockey and the culture of soccer coming over from Europe makes it difficult for mascots to be successful. Now, I say that with the fact that we are actually working with Manchester City over in the UK to work on their character brands and make them stronger. So there are some exceptions. I think in the in the history of of mascots, I think the collegiate sector is the one. Um, that has created characters that maybe don't look the best in terms of a costume, but have the most support because of, of the passion. So virtually every single college, you know, from Alabama and Big Al all the way to the, the, the banana slugs. I mean, you've got or, yep. the, or, the, or the artichokes, believe it or not, with their football team has the word chokes on the side of their helmet, yep. which, the, which their, their coach quipped it's difficult to recruit for a team when your nickname is the jokes. So, so I, I really think that across the board, there will always be an illustration of a great character that's been branded well. And then at the same time, there are characters that probably should not have even been conceived. Uh, you know, Puffy the Taco comes to mind out in San Antonio for minor league baseball. Um, so, so I really think from a professional standpoint, the NBA is the best. The collegiate sector, I think, has the most history and passion, and, and they celebrate all of that. So if you go to the University of Kansas, um, you will see the story of the of the original Baby J that was really built in somebody's basement. Yep. Uh, a young young lady who was a big fan built Baby J, and they have the original Baby J costume that she built in a giant case. So, so it, it's kind of all over the map, um, but I think what remains is the passion. Um, and the celebration of, of organizations that people uh, love and, and, and will revere. It's so true. Here at Ole Miss, Colonel Reb was really revered for many years. I, I think a fo- f- few folks in the faculty said that it was offensive, that some people took offense, though. It was never really proven. And uh, time and time again, people would do polling, and no one found it offensive. It looked a lot like Colonel Sanders. But they just put it in a lockbox. And then they had people vote. No one wanted to vote. And next thing you know, there's this black bear. It started running around the stadium. And, David, you have to see it because no one gives him a high five. And he, he hides half the time in the big football and basketball games. He hides because the fans don't like him. And there's nothing worse than being a mascot who's not loved at home games, David. I'm thinking yeah, well, I would take pills before well, I... Well, Lee, listen, this is perfect because, you know, I'm the expert. I'm the high-paid consultant. Yeah. So I would say this. It's not a good idea to create a, ba- a mascot that nobody likes. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much a bad idea. Right. And last, just the last thought, the mascot boot camp. Describe it. we got about a minute left for you. Uh, describe what goes on at that boot camp. 
it's really it started for serious performers that wanted to get better at their craft and we treat it very much like an acting class and there's some there's enormous uh similarities to what you would do as an actor uh, you know you have to know who you're portraying and what their attitudes are um but what it's grown into is is actually us starting to develop fantasy mascot camps for people who always say man I would love to be the fanatic and for a day of training uh, and then we find an event with costumes and let these, uh, and some are uh, adults as, into their 60s, and some are as young as seven years old. Um, and we, we teach them how to be safe and how to have fun, and then we put them in costumes and take them to an event. And when people come out of that, they, they tell you, like I did the first time I did The Fanatic, that's the greatest thing I've ever done. Um, never had more fun in my life. Um, you know, some, some people are dealing with, with physical maladies like... Um, like autism and and we make them happy too so, so oh david i have i have so many them. physical and mental maladies and i want to be the philly fanatic so i want to come to the boot camp and i want to take you up on that that would be nothing would make me more thrilled than to go out in front of an audience and be the fanatic i've been talking to david raymond and he's the founder of the mascot hall of fame and you can go to mascotholloffame.com also raymond entertainment group that's raymondeg.com david raymond thanks so much for joining us Thanks, Lee. I loved it. You bet. And this is, again, Our American Stories. We love sports. We love mascots. stories and we've been talking about mascots because of a terrific piece in the wall street journal about the mascot hall of fame and there's nothing more american than sports and the way we well the way we put so much of our energy and passion into it some people think it's silly i think it's just fantastic and david raven had joined us for the last few segments and he's the founder of the mascot hall of fame and it was himself the original philly fanatic of the philadelphia phillies now we're going to bring you one of the other mascots mentioned in that article in the Wall Street Journal, the man behind another legendary mascot known as Clutch the Bear of the Houston Rockets. And joining us now is Robert Bodwin. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, you bet. And should we call you the artist formerly known as Clutch? Yeah, the deadmascot.com, the artist formerly known as Clutch.com, RobertBodwin.com. I answer to all these names at all these websites. Excellent. So I love it. Are. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us how you got to be Clutch. How did this happen? You know, I think my story is very similar to a lot of professional mascots. You know, there's only about 125 guys nationwide that do this full-time for a living. And I think the vast majority would kind of say that they fell into it. Uh, it's not like you set out as a child uh, to be a mascot performer uh, as a profession. Um, I didn't even know it was a profession when I started doing it in high school and then got to Delaware at the university. I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, did it for the Wissahickon High School. I was the Trojan. Um, I wore a, I, my face showed, and I wore body armor and painted my face and wore a kilt. And then when I got to college, I started the mascot there, the University of Delaware Blue Hen, a UD character in 1993, and just kind of met some cheerleaders freshman year, told them I did it in high school, and they said, yeah, you should try out. 
Uh, so I did, and I, I won the role. Did it in, in high school or college, and then started to realize that there's guys that did this full time year round as a profession, uh, and that's kind of when I started aspiring to do it. Uh, met Dave Raymond that you mentioned earlier, who uh, has been on your program. He was the original fanatic. He had just retired when I started the character at Delaware, but his father was our football coach, Tubby Raymond, and uh, Dave was on the sidelines all the time. So I kind of looked up to Dave as a uh, trailblazer and, uh, you know, kind of a founder of the profession. Uh, and uh, then I kind of realized that people do do this and uh, started auditioning uh, for jobs come uh, the summer after my junior year and won the Rockets audition in 1995. And uh, kind of went to school to be an accountant, but came out wearing fur. Unbelievable. And, uh, spent, spent 21 <laughs> years at the Rockets. Uh, and i got to be honest with you, um, I by far, this career by far exceeded my wildest dreams. I, you know, I first got into it to kind of be funny and goof around and be center of attention in a costume. And that license to kind of break the, the rules of social engagement, invade people's space, and uh, improv. But in the time that I've spent here, I've gotten to do so much more with it. We've done 1,750 school shows in front of 1.2 million Houston youth. I did a school show last year. A teacher came up to me at the end of it and said, man, that show was even better the second time around. And I said, oh, were you a teacher at the school uh, you know, that I did the year before and transferred? And she said, no, I saw it in fourth grade. <laughs> so uh, it, it made me feel both insulted that I'm now 42 yeah. and uh, like, I, in, like I affected a generation of Houstonians with their, their education. Uh, we wrote seven different storybooks. I've traveled the globe to 12 different countries, performed on armed forces entertainment tours on military bases overseas. Uh, it's just been a wonderful experience. And uh, the Houstonians that have allowed me into their hearts over the years I thank immensely. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, you received yeah. attention in an internet meme that involved a man being shot down during a halftime marriage proposal at a Rockets <laughs> game in 2008 after the woman said no and stormed <laughs> off the court. Tell us what happened next. Well, um, without divulging any trade secrets, uh, some of those bits are staged, some aren't. And we kind of leave our fans guessing as to which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, I, I remember that bit well. This was back when uh, YouTube was starting to gain more and more popularity for watching stuff. And I think we got 11 million hits on that in just a week or so's time. And we started getting calls from around the globe. A, uh, a TV station in Japan did a story on it. And uh, it, was, it was a memorable moment uh, that I, I definitely consider in one of the top of my career. And really had the, uh, the crowd at first shocked and in disbelief and then kind of offended. <laughs> they were mad at that woman for saying no to, uh, to the proposal, at least publicly, and uh, created quite a, a, a stir. Well, whether it was true or not, we just, we're just, you're not going to divulge, are you? You're not giving it up, are you? <laughs> right here, you can make history. You can tell us. That a, a true uh, magician never reveals the secrets uh, to his trick, and so I kind true. of view this as uh, is that magic uh, and the whole craft of mascotting. You bet, the craft of mascotting. Can you tell us one of the crazier things you've seen or experienced as a mascot? Oh my goodness, there's so many. In 1998, I accidentally shot Catino Mobley in the chest with our t-shirt gun, and we haven't had a t-shirt gun at the Houston Rockets 
since then. Um, one of the cheerleaders was looking one way, but running the other way and accidentally banged into me. And we had cheerleaders on the court to throw to the lower level because this gun, which we affectionately called the BFG, I'll let you figure out what the F stands for. Uh, but the BFG was so powerful, we only shot it to the upper level. And they had to throw to the lower level. Well, she's looking one way, uh, bangs into the back of me, and I'm in the costume. I don't see her coming. Knocks me forward to my knees, sets off the gun, and I'm only 20 feet from the huddle where Rudy T is instructing the team at a timeout. The T-shirt rockets right into rockets, so to speak, aha, uh -huh, <laughs> into the huddle, drops Katino Mobley like a sack of bricks. Right there. They had to cart him off the court. You want to talk about, and I had no clue what happened, because I'm in the costume. I just get knocked down. I heard the gun go off. I jump right back up and finish the T-shirt toss, and there's the stupid bear with his big grin painted on his face, like, yep, who wants a shirt? Right after I just shoot our starting forward in the chest <laughs> and knock him out of the game. Um, I've been humped by Jack Nicholson. Um, my first year on the job, we just won two championships. Jack Nicholson sitting courtside next to our owner. I go to do this routine where I act like I'm sitting on his lap and uh, bouncing up and down on his knee like a little eight-year-old or like a little four-year-old child would. What I don't realize is all of a sudden the whole crowd laughs hysterically. <laughs> a big, huge guffaw. And I'm like kind of scratching my head like, oh, this is funny, but it's not that funny. And unbeknownst <laughs> to me, what he had done and the cameraman's right there, is he wraps his one arm around the waist of the bear, which is a 92-inch waist, and it's mostly dead space and padding in there, so I don't feel it. And he looks next to her at the camera, and he acts like he's thrusting into the backside of the costume. And I don't feel it because there's just hula hoops in there that give it shape, and I'm not putting any pressure on his knees. I just kind of squat, making it look like I'm sitting on him so I don't hurt anybody. And then, of course, I finished the routine out by jumping up, bowing down to him and kissing his feet because he's a big celebrity. But what it looks like is that he's, you know, kind of humping me from behind, and then I thank him for it. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on about the stories. I ruined an MLK Day parade by accident one time. Uh, we do this MLK Day parade every single year. We're one of the highlights of the parade. I'm in the van. Uh, I'm in my big mascot van. I'm sitting on the hood, and I shoot off streamers, one after another, cannons, streamer cannons. Well, my assistant had accidentally packed these Mylar metallic uh, streamers. Well, we're going right by the big main grandstand area and the booth with the DJ and the music and the PA announcer. And, of course, I want to lay it on thick there because that's the big, important, crowded area of the parade. And what I don't realize is most of these cannons are paper cannons, but he gives me a Mylar one that's metal, and it goes up into the air, catches onto the power lines, and blows one of the transformers out. I hear a huge explosion, and again, I'm in costume. I'm like, what the heck was that? Thinking that like a bomb went off or something, and I had no clue what it was. Well, what it was was one of the transformers, and I blew the power out for like a four-block radius, including what was powering the entire stage at the parade. <laughs> so the PA, the music, everything went out the rest of the day. Oh, that's a great and job. I don't realize this until after the fact, so I'm like, oh, great, I just ruined the Martin Luther King Jr. parade. Well, what a great story. And you got about a minute left here. Tell us what it was like to win a spot in the Mascot Hall of Fame. Oh, it was great. It was uh, humbling. Uh especially because it's from a lot of the guys that do this every day for their 
their career and their life, your peers, uh, not just, you know, uh, people that really know the insides of the, the profession and the daily grind of it and the, and the challenge of being creative and writing your own material, producing it, directing it, and uh, starring in it. Uh, so it was humbling. It was great. It was one of the great honors of my career. I can't wait to see them uh, finish construction on it and visit it up in Whiting, Indiana. Uh, so it, it, was, it was great. Well, we look forward to meeting you there. We want to be there when, when the induction occurs. We've been talking to Robert Bodwin, and he is the artist formerly known as Clutch. And you can go to robertbodwin.com and catch up with his life, where he is at. And thank you for those great, great stories, Robert. Man, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing inspirational speaking now as a career in marketing consulting. So any of your listeners out there, that uh, would like to reach out to me for a speech or for some consulting help, I would love to entertain uh, a discussion with them. You bet. That's robertbodwin.com, and that's Robert B-O-U-D-W-I-N.com. The artist formerly known as Clutch, and that is Clutch from the Houston Rockets, their dear and endearing mascot. This is Our American Stories.